Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today for Crying with God, Suffering and Divinity in the Thought of the Aish Kodesh with Rabbi Tali Adler. Rabbi Tali Adler is a member of the Hadar faculty, a musmechet of Yeshivat Maharat, and an alumna of Stern College for Women. Rabbi Adler has studied at a number of institutions, including Hadar, Drisha, and Midrashat Harava. Without further ado, I will pass it over to Rabbi Tali Adler. Thank you so much, Alex. Hi, everyone. We're going to be studying for the next hour or so. The thought of the Ish Kodesh, particularly as he tries to grapple with the question of, is it possible or what does it look like to have a relationship with God when you're in grief? I'll start out with just this question. Has anyone here ever studied the thought of the Ish Kodesh before? Okay, this is going to be really exciting for me at least. Okay, Let's start with who is the Ish Kodesh. The Ish Kodesh is no is actually the name of his most famous work, which he is known by. But the Ish Kodesh's name was Rabbi Kolonimus Kalman Shapira, and he's most famous for two things. The first is being the rabbi of the Warsaw Ghetto. He was a Hasidic rabbi who gave sermons every Shabbat in the Warsaw Ghetto. And the second is for the fact that those sermons, we actually have them in the form of a book called the Ish Kodesh. How do we have them? There was actually an attempt in the ghetto, a successful attempt to create an archive of Jewish life in the ghetto before before the end. And I believe the Ish Kodesh's manuscript was one of many that was hidden in actually milk jugs and found after the war. That's how we have these sermons. And what you see the Ish Kodesh doing, the Rebbe doing throughout those sermons is trying to make sense of what theology, what Jewish theology might look like in the face of massive amounts of suffering and massive amounts of grief. He's particularly invested in the question of how can we continue, even with our lives as they are in the Warsaw Ghetto, how can we continue approaching God? How can we continue engaging with Jewish practice? And how can we do that while also giving meaning to our suffering? And that's going to be the the primary question of the piece we'll be looking at today. I wanna say two things before we begin. First of all, I encountered this piece for the first time many years ago. I returned to it during lockdown, during COVID. Obviously lockdown is not anything like being in the Warsaw Ghetto. But the themes he touched on of loneliness, of grief, of uncertainty, and in the midst of all of that, trying to to keep up a religious life and trying to keep up a connection with God spoke to me very strongly. And 
if there's anyone here today who feels that there is a time in their life where that might be particularly helpful, I hope that this helps a little bit. The second thing I want to say before we dive in, and I always say this when I teach any piece by the Aish Kodesh, is that unfortunately, neither of the Aish Kodesh's children survived the war. But he believed that, and he wrote really movingly about this, that when you write things that are truly from your heart and truly from your soul, when people read those, even after your death, there is a moment where it is like your soul is on earth for a moment. There is a moment where you have actually become in some way reanimated. And I hope that in our learning together today, we do a little bit of that for the H. Kodesh. Let's dive in. We're going to begin with the classic biblical and rabbinic sources that the Ish Kodesh will be working from in order to create this theology. Our starting point is going to be a verse from Jeremiah, from Yirmiyahu, from Jeremiah, who is prophesying about the future destruction of the temple and the exile of the Jewish people. And for the sake of time, I'll read in English. For if you will not give heed, my inmost self must weep because of your arrogance. This is God addressing the Jewish people. And I want to note the words, my inmost self must weep. That's a translation of the word bamistarim. Bamistarim can also be translated as in the hidden places. And we'll see why that matters in a moment. My eye must stream and flow with copious tears because the flock of the Lord is taken captive. So our jumping off point is this verse where God is saying, if you, if you don't listen and if you don't change your behavior, I'm going to be deeply grieved because this is what is going to happen to you. The rabbis in the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, are going to look at this verse and seize on two things. The first is the idea of God crying. It's a fascinating and disturbing idea. And the second is this word, translated here as my inmost self, but which they will translate as in the hidden places. Let's take a look at what they do with that. But if you will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret. That's how that word in Mysterium is being translated here, for your pride. Rav Shmuel Bar Enya said in the name of Rav, the Holy One, blessed be he, has a place and its name is Mysterium. So the first thing we're doing here is we're jumping off from this word in the verse, Mysterium, which can mean in secret, in the hidden places. And Rav Shmuel Bar Inya is saying that is actually a specific place in heaven that God has. Let's skip ahead to the next paragraph. But is there crying before the Holy One, blessed be he? In the verse, God speaks about God crying. And this is a very difficult idea for at least some of the rabbis of the Talmud. Didn't Rav Papa say there is no sadness before the Holy One, blessed be he, as it is stated, honor and majesty are before him, strength and gladness are in his place. 
let's look at Rav Papa's conception for a moment of what it is to be God. What it is to be God for Rav Papa cannot allow for grief, cannot allow for crying. It has only emotions that we tend to label as quote unquote positive emotions. Um, strength, honor, gladness. And Rav Papa is presenting a position that says God actually doesn't have, I'll say, room for those more difficult emotions like grief. So what then is going on in that verse in Yermiahu and that Pasuk in Jeremiah? The Talmud answers, this is not difficult, as usual. This statement, meaning the statement about God crying, is referring to the innermost chambers. It's referring to the more private areas where only presumably God has access. Whereas that statement, meaning Rav Papa's statement about God only has gladness and honor, is referring to the outer chambers. So what are we left with here? We're left with this idea that there is a maybe public face of God, which is open at all times to all people. And that is the God that we usually, I would say, imagine. Joyful, full of honor, full of strength. But there is a place that God withdraws to in a more private place where God can indeed cry and God experiences grief. Usually when I get to this part, I say, I know that if there are any Maimonideans in the room, this is particularly difficult. Maimonideans do not like anthropomorphized visions of God. I'm gonna ask you to bear with me for one moment. There, this is a text that obviously challenges that. Let's continue in this piece from the Bible, in this piece from the Talmud. And doesn't God cry in the outer chambers? Meaning now we're questioning this, this division. Are you telling me that God never cries in the outer chambers? Isn't it written on that day, the Lord, the God of hosts called to weeping and to mourning and to baldness and to girding with sackcloth? Don't we have a verse where God is very obviously in Yeshayahu, in Isaiah, opening, mourning openly? The destruction of the temple is different, as even the angels of peace cried. That's a different case. Yes, there are moments where God, where the world is in such a terrible place that God will cry openly. But most of the time when God cries, God has to do it in the inner chambers, in secret, in privacy. Let's continue with one more text that builds on this idea of God crying before we get to the text of the Ish Kodesh, who's going to use this as a jumping off point to talk about, okay, and then what happens when we're crying? Is there a way that we can encounter God in that moment? This is from Echa Rabbah. This is a midrash on the book of Echa, on the book of Lamentations, which deals with questions of grief, of suffering, of punishment, all of those questions throughout. At that time, meaning at the moment of the destruction of the temple and the exile of the Jewish people, the Holy Blessed One cried and said, woe is me, what have I done? I brought my spirit down for Israel's sake and now that they have sinned, I have returned to my original place. 
Heaven forbid I should be a laughingstock to the nations and a joke among my creatures. This is God feeling that God, that the destruction of the temple is something that is going to cause God tremendous dishonor in the world. And also, let's just note here, now that they have sinned, I have returned to my original place. God is saying, I lost my home. I lost my home on earth, and woe is me. At that moment, Metatron. Metatron is, in many rabbinic texts, the, um, the archangel. At that moment, Metatron came and fell on his face and said before God, Master of the universe, I will cry and you will not cry. Meaning there's this image of God begins to cry because God is so grieved about the destruction of the temple. And this angel reacts with what I'll call Rav Papa-like upset, meaning this angel can't bear the idea of God crying. This angel can't bear the image of God crying. If any of you, I think most people have some sort of a memory of this. The first time you saw one of your parents cry and the feelings that came with that, the feeling of, wait, you, how is it possible that you are crying? I think that's what we're meant to imagine Metatron is experiencing in this moment. And Metatron is saying, let me cry so that you don't have to cry. God said, if you will not leave me be to cry now, I will go to a place that you do not have the ability to enter, and I will cry there. As it says, for if you will not give heed, my inmost soul must weep, or rather, I will weep the mystarim in this innermost place where you do not have access to. Let's just trace what we've seen so far. We've seen the development of this idea. A, that God cries, but B, that when God cries, God has to in some way retreat to the innermost chambers in order to do that. And we've seen pointers in different directions about, okay, but why? Why would God have to retreat into his innermost chambers in order to be able to cry? One direction that we saw was maybe it's simply not appropriate for God to be crying in God's public court. Maybe that's not the public face of God. But here in Echa we see a different version of why, which is God's creations for the most part actually can't stand the sight or the reality of God crying. And so God has to retreat in order to do that. I'm going to continue in the text now, but I want to ask people, as we read in the text, to put in the chat, how does this idea, this image of God crying land on you? Is it an intriguing image? Is it outrageous? What do you think when you hear that image, the idea of God crying? And again, I'll invite people to put that in the chat as I continue in the text. We're now going to jump into the piece by the Eish Kodesh that we're going to be studying together primarily today. And again, just for people who joined after the introduction, the Eish Kodesh is writing this piece in the Warsaw Ghetto. This is thought to, it's difficult to say 
about many of his pieces when they were written. There are scholars doing a lot of that work right now. This is thought to be one of his later pieces when he's really been grappling with the meaning of their suffering for a very long time and trying to create new frameworks to make sense of what that means religiously. Let's jump in. It could be asked, how could Moses have had a prophetic revelation when to receive prophecy, sorry, just trying to scroll in a little bit, a person must be in a state of simcha, a state of joy. There is an idea that the Rebbe is grappling with here. It comes up in the Talmud and I think most importantly, it's a very key idea in Hasidut, and the Rebbe is coming from a Hasidic lineage, that the only way to approach God is in a state of joy, and that in particular, you can only get prophecy in a state of joy. And the Rebbe looks at that idea and he says, okay, but what about Moses? What about Moshe? Aside from the fact, and I'm back in the text now, that Pharaoh was trying to kill him, Moses was anguished over the pain of the Jewish people. Moshe had such <coughs> excuse me, empathy with the pain of the Jews that he later said to God, this is at the sin of the golden calf, please forgive their sin. If not, blot me out from the book that you have written. This is the very reason why God appeared to Moshe for the first time from within the burning thorn bush. Rashi explains the choice of the thorn bush by quoting the verse, I am with him in his pain. Let's just see what happens so far. God is looking at Moshe and say, I'm sorry. The Rebbe is looking at Moshe and saying, obviously Moshe was in tremendous amounts of pain and grief. His people were suffering. They were enslaved. And in fact, God chose Moshe largely because of his incredible capacity for empathy. What then do we make of this idea that you can only achieve prophecy in a state of joy? So long as God, and here the Rebbe begins to answer, so long as God has only strength and rejoicing in his abode. This is the verse we saw above that Rav Papa cites in order to say there's no crying in heaven. Then prophets too can prophesy only when they are joyous. So, Sure, at a time when God is truly joyous, presumably things are good for God's children, God is pleased with the state of the world, then yes, it is true, you can only achieve prophecy in a state of joy. But when God is, as it were, together with the Jews in their pain and trouble, then prophecy may also come to a prophet who is likewise in pain over the plight of the Jews. Okay, the Rebbe's done two things so far, and I want us to imagine the Rebbe delivering this drasha, this sermon in, in Shul, in synagogue on Shabbat. He's done two things so far for the people in the audience. The first thing is he reminds them of this idea that when they are suffering, God is suffering with them. That they are actually not alone in their suffering. God is not kind of cut off from them or looking on at them in anger, but God actually feels their pain and is suffering with them. The second thing he's done 
is he's opened up a pathway for the question of how is it possible for me to approach God when I'm in a time of grief? And he's doing that by saying, you know what? You can even achieve prophecy in a time of grief when God is in grief too. We're going to follow that path forward now. In the Talmud, this is the piece we saw above, we learn, it is written, my soul weeps in mystering, which here is translated as concealment. We're not going to reread this entire piece. It's what we saw above. I'll close with the, I'll jump to the Rebbe's comment. Thus, we learn that while in the outer chambers of heaven, there is always strength and rejoicing before God, within the inner chambers, God weeps in his distress, as it were, over the pain of the Jews. So, it is possible that at a time of Hester Panim, concealment of the divine face. Let's jump back for a moment. What's the concept of Hester Panim? The concept of Hester Panim is a concept that says that how do we account for tremendous, and it seems maybe sometimes uncalled for, suffering in the world? We account for it by the idea that at times God actually turns his face away from the world and conceals God's self so that it is impossible, essentially, to reach God through prayer. The Rebbe is going to take that concept and transform it and say, no, Hester Panim, concealment of the divine face, times when God turns his face away from the world, it is actually still possible to reach God at those moments, and we'll see how. So it is possible that at a time of Hester Panim, concealment of the divine face, which is to say when God hides himself within the inner chambers, a Jew may also enter and be alone with God there, each Jew at his own level. Let's just see what happens. Above, in the Midrash from Echa Rabbah, we got the idea that why does God go into this place, Mishtarim, in order to cry? Because that's the only place that God can be alone and not upset other people with his tears. And the Rabbi is saying, you know what? It is possible for you to follow God in there. When God is crying and you are also in grief, you actually can follow God into that innermost chamber and be together with God there. There within the inner chambers, Torah and worship is revealed to each person who enters. He's saying there's actually a particular facet of Torah that you can only really appreciate, is only really revealed to you when you follow God into that innermost chamber, when in your grief and your tears, you have what I'll call the courage and the compassion to follow God in to God's chamber and cry there together with God. We've already spoken about how the oral Torah was revealed primarily in exile and in Babylon and how the Holy Zohar was only revealed to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son, Rabbi Elazar, when they were living in a cave, fleeing the Roman government, afraid for their lives. What's the Rebbe doing there? The Rebbe is pointing to different examples of moments in Jewish history where there was huge development in Torah. For example, the Babylonian exile gave us the Babylonian Talmud. 
or Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in Kabbalistic thought and Hasidic thought in particular is thought to have written the Zohar. And he's saying, you know why Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was able to read, was able to reveal the Zohar? It was because he followed God into that place of suffering. He was suffering and he united his suffering with God's and that revealed a new aspect of Torah. Rather than your grief cutting you off from Torah, rather than your grief cutting you off from God and religion, this is a pathway that the Rebbe is offering in which it might allow you access to a new aspect and a new, a new aspect of God and new aspects of Torah. And now the Rebbe is going to become very frank about the difficulty of maintaining a religious life in times of suffering. And I want us again in this moment to imagine the Ish Kodesh, Rav Kalanimus Kaman Shapira, in Shul, on Shabbat, in the Warsaw Ghetto, delivering this sermon to his congregation. There are times when a person wonders about himself, thinking, I am broken. I am ready to burst into tears at any moment. And in fact, I break down in tears from time to time. How can I possibly learn Torah? What can I do to find the strength not just to learn Torah, but to discover new Torah and a fussy dude? Then there are times when a person beats his heart saying, is it not simply my supercilious heart allowing me to be so stubborn, to learn Torah in the midst of my pain and in the midst of the pain of the Jews whose suffering is so great? And then he answers himself, but I am so broken. I have cried so much. My whole life is fraught with grief and dejection. He is lost inside his self-introspective, self-analytical confusion. Let's pause for a moment. The Rebbe is offering two different character sketches of how some religious people might react to moments of intense suffering and their attempts to maintain a religious life in those moments. One is, and I think that many of us can probably imagine this if we haven't experienced it ourselves, the feeling that I, I'm too broken in this moment, actually, to get up and to study Torah. I'm too downcast to be able to continue with the rituals and the meaning that have so far shaped my life. That's one. And then the other is someone who continues studying Torah and who continues living a life filled with those rituals and that meaning and says, but am I just doing this to distract myself? from the reality that's going on around me? Are these just actually empty ways of taking myself away from what's real? And the Rebbe talks about getting lost in that, in that introspection and that isolation and the way it can become a cycle. And then he says, but as we have said above, it is the Holy Blessed One who is crying within the inner chambers. And whoever presses himself close to God through Torah is able to weep there together with God and to learn Torah with him. This is the difference. The pain and grief he suffers over his own situation alone in isolation can break a person. He may even fall so far that he becomes immobilized by it. 
but the crying that a person does together with God makes him strong. He cries and takes strength. He is shattered and then he is emboldened to study and worship. The Rebbe here is saying, and let me tell you why this idea of following God into the innermost chambers and crying together with God matters. It matters because of the different ways that we have to grieve. And when we grieve on our own in isolation, when we have no one to cry with, that's the sort of crying that can break someone. But when you feel that you actually are crying together with God, and not only that, but you have followed God in so that God doesn't have to cry alone. You have already committed an act of bravery and an act of incredible compassion by following God in there. Then you're crying in fellowship, even if that fellowship is not with another human being, even if that fellowship is with God. And in crying together with God, if you feel that you are crying together with God, two things happen. First of all, and I want to reread this, the crying that a person does together with God makes him strong. He cries and takes strength. He is shattered and then is emboldened to study and to worship. It gives you the strength to go on. It gives you the strength not only to go on, but to Continue in with the things that give you meaning. Continue with the things that you are committed to. But also, and this is to remind us of what the Rebbe said above, it allows us in its better moments, access potentially to a new sort of religious experience, a new sort of religious understanding, and a new sort of Torah. Let's keep going. And then I want us to take a few moments to take reactions in the chat to this piece. It is only the first or second time that a person finds it difficult to pick himself up because of the pain. If he is bold, if he stretches out his head to touch the Torah and worship, he gains access to the innermost chambers where God is. There he laments and mutilates with God, as it were, alone with him. Then, even in the midst of pain, he can learn Torah and worship God's blessed devotions. Here's where the Rebbe is offering, I would say, an incredible bit of hope. The Rebbe is saying, yeah, the first time you try to do this, it is going to be incredibly hard. It is going to be incredibly hard because of the pain you are suffering, and it's going to be incredibly hard because it is new. But once you've experienced this once, if you, and I'm going to read his words, if you are bold, if you stretch out with your head to touch the Torah and worship, you gain access to those innermost chambers where God is. And having done it once, you know that you can do it again. Once you have accessed that place where you can be with God in grief, that ability never goes away. Okay, let's pause for a moment. I want to read, excuse me, some of the reactions that came in in the chat to the question of how does this image of God crying hit you? And I'd like to invite people to put in reactions to the Rebbe's piece in the chat. This idea specifically of crying together with God. 
And the idea that new religious experience and new understandings of Torah can come out of that experience of grief with God, how does that land on you? Do you find it hopeful? Do you find it believable? Do you find it aspirational? Do you maybe find it too aspirational? How does it land on you? Aglaia Marata Venters, sorry if I mispronounced that. Was that right? Yes. Excellent. Beautiful name, said intriguing. Emma said, though I don't think of divinity anthropomorphically, it's a very evocative and emotionally compelling idea for me. Great. I want to highlight that. Even if this conception of God is not necessarily the idea of divinity that we believe in, this can still be an important idea for us just as what it means to be human beings in the world. What, what does this idea do to us emotionally, even if it doesn't necessarily align with all of our intellectual dispositions about God? Ethan Woodoff says, I find comfort knowing that God may feel grief too. It helps me rationalize the existence of evil in our world. That definitely resonates with me. And Arthur Shostak says, reminds me of God's complexity as seen 3,000 years ago. We have a less complex view nowadays. Yeah. It often can feel as if rather than developing more sophisticated ideas of God over time, we've actually lost some of our ability to express full, rich pictures of what divinity might look like. And then I just want to read what Jeff Shulman wrote. I love the idea that God might cry, God's tears invite my own. I love that. And I want to just point out you you actually put out there a the mirror image of what the Rebbe's offering here. What the Rebbe's offering here is when you are crying, you can then go find God in grief. What you just offered, which I think is beautiful, is that if God is crying, then that also gives me permission to cry. And not only permission, but allows me to to really lean into that feeling rather than feeling like I have to push it away. And I want to really underline the, the feeling that you have to push it away. The Rebbe is coming from a rich tradition of belief. And in his earlier pre-war writings, the Rebbe actually writes about this, that one of the primary ways to access God is through joy which is a beautiful idea. And I hope that all of us experience in our lives at different points. But it also is an idea that can make grief feel like a failing or grief feel like a bar to the world of the world of divinity and the world of religion. And a big part of what the Rebbe is offering here is saying your experience is real, your experience matters, and your experience actually matters religiously. You don't have to hide it. You can actually use it to come closer to God than ever before. Let's, I want us to wrap up before we make time for questions with a poem by Rilke, who is living, I think, around the same time as the Rebbe, actually. I've never, I've never found any evidence of whether or not the Rebbe read Rilke. I don't even know if the Rebbe read poetry. But I think it evokes a lot 
of similar ideas to what the Rebbe is offering. This translation is from a relatively recent translation by Anita Barrows and Joanna Macy of Rilke's Book of Hours. If anyone is interested, I think the translation, that book in general, is absolutely beautiful. You, God, who live next door, if at times through the long night I trouble you with my urgent knocking, this is why. I hear you breathe so seldom. I know you're all alone in that room. If you should be thirsty, there's no one to get you a glass of water. I wait listening always. Just give me a sign. I'm right here. As it happens, the wall between us is very thin. Why shouldn't a cry from one of us break it down? It would crumble easily. It would barely make sense. What Rilke's pointing to here is this similar idea of a God who sometimes is lonely and a God who sometimes is there all alone. And I want to reread this line from Rilke. As it happens, the wall between us is very thin. Why couldn't a cry from one of us break it down? It would crumble easily. It would barely make a sound. A cry here in this translation probably means a cry as in a shout, some sort of loud exclamation. But what I want to offer is that if we read this side by side with the piece from the Ish Kodesh, a new possibility opens up, which is that the cry actually is a cry of tears. And that sometimes maybe the only way to break down the wall between us and God. And in this conception, God who needs companionship just as we do, is through that cry, is through tears. And that when we're brave enough to do that, when we're brave enough to allow ourselves to cry that tear, the wall, as Rilke says, would crumble easily. It would barely make a sound. Okay, everyone, we're going to, I'm going to wrap up my portion here. I'd love to open for questions. And along with questions, I'd love to also just open for reactions. How did these texts land on you? How did these ideas land on you? How are you processing them? Any and all of the above. Thank you so much, Rabbi Adler. Yes, if anyone has a question or a comment, wants to share, um, please feel free to raise your hands and unmute. Hi, Emma. Hey. Um, well, first of all, thank you so much. This has been really amazing and meaningful. Um, I know when I said earlier, like, I don't think of divinity as like a super anthropomorphic um, conception, but I also don't think that this is incompatible with that like it's i'm curious if there have been reactions from like a more pantheist or panentheist like idea of god um to these ideas because it it does seem very aligned in its own way of like divinity as this transcendent maybe culmination or connection of you know our our emotions and experiences yeah, I I can't say if there's been a text-based reaction specifically to this piece of writing, but I think you're absolutely right that there, there can be a clear pantheist or panentheistic view lens on this, which is 
you might say, if that's your inclination, this in other language, which is the universe suffers and we are not alone in that suffering. The, the part that I think, the part that's very poignant here that I think that lens might lose is part of what makes this, I think, powerful. And again, only part, there's a lot that can be, can be understood here beautifully through a, pan, through a pantheistic lens, is this idea of, and there is a God who is lonely who also needs us there, and we're committing an act of compassion. I don't know if you can say that, committing an act of compassion, um, by following God in there. And that, that also opens up a possibility. So often we're taught to think of our own sadness or our own grief as somehow selfish. And this is actually saying, no, your grief can sometimes be a service to others. Your grief can even be a service to God. Totally. Thank you. Beautiful. Alex, you want to keep calling on people? Sure. Hi, Aglaia. Okay, so it would get into, it would take too long to explain this story, though, but um, I do, I can say that it actually does work, though, and um, there's a way that I can just, um, a message that I um, sent to a friend of mine who's a rabbi, but long story short, though, back in 2019, um, my dad died, my, one of my best friend's dad, her dad died, then her husband died in a freak accident, two of my cousins died within a week of each other, and then my, you know, professor with whom I'm very, very close, his father died, so I had all of these people dying right from under me, so, but this is what I wrote, you know, to a friend of mine who's a rabbi about it, all I could do is pay and pay, pray and pay attention, before the Torah, praying meant to me that I was going to give up, However, God's plan had been accomplished. The Torah had changed me, and I couldn't just see praying as giving up ever again. The Torah had changed my mind to know that praying is the only solution sometimes that you ever get, even if you don't realize it. And this was, oh, and also all that stuff happened after a really tragic, other tragic thing that happened. And so long story short, the yeah. So I wasn't expecting to follow God into that innermost chamber, but it happened. So I can say it does work. At least for some of us, it does work. So. Thank you so much for sharing that, both what you wrote and, and the experience. Thank you. Thank you. Um, hi, Adam. Hi there. Uh, I, I look at these as, as metaphors. They're metaphors for our experience. Uh, they really, I'm more monodian or penentheist, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't look at this as this is what God is doing since uh, in my view, we don't know anything about God. God is, is unknowable. But these are our metaphors for describing how we deal with grief and, he, and how we uh, want to think of and project even how uh, we think of God also grieving. And uh, that gives our uh, that looks, it, it's, it's, uh, we, when we think about it, we understand that it's a metaphor. When we're in the midst of it, we can cry out to God and feel that God is crying with us. And, uh, uh, but we ultimately know when we step back, wait, wait a minute, this is, was a metaphor for my experience. So we can deal with it both intellectually on one hand and emotionally, on another hand, and they 
you know, the whole thing doesn't have to be consistent. So that's that's that was my take on this. But it's it's a beautiful thing, actually. Uh, I put a note in the chat uh, if we could get a, uh, a a copy of the text so that we could print it out. That would be wonderful. Absolutely. And I think Alex posted both a link in the chat, but also if anyone ever wants to email me for this source sheet, my email is adler at hadar.org. I'm happy to send it directly to your email. Thank and you. I just want to say, I, I loved what you said about regardless of whether it's a metaphor in the moment, you experience it as real. And that, that being, that just strikes me as incredibly powerful. Yeah. Ethan? Hi, Rabbi. Um, thank you for this very powerful conversation. Um, I have found a lot of comfort in our discussion today on how God may join us and how we may join God uh, in grief. And in one of my comments earlier, I sort of alluded to the relationship that some may have with faith during times of grief. And in reflecting upon my own comment, um, I wonder if strained relationships with faith may not happen actually because of grief itself, uh, but as because of a certain aspect of grief uh, being anger. And I'm wondering if, uh, you know, it, it suggests to me that in the, the text that we've studied, um, the suggestion that God can feel sad, can feel uh, can can be grieving, um, and I'm wondering if this the emotion of anger uh, may also be a translatable emotion uh, that God may feel alongside of us, and that we may feel alongside of of God. Love that question. I here's what I'll say about anger in the work of the Ish Kodesh, but now I'm dying to see a modern, a contemporary response to that question. I think it's a beautiful one. The, the Ish Kodesh starts with what I'll call a very traditional, classically traditional, quote unquote, theological response to suffering in the world um, at the very beginning of his sermons. You can see him doing that at the, the very beginning of, of everything that's happening. And in that, there's this idea that, yes, we sin, and therefore we are punished. But if we repent, then God will take us back. And I would say that that is often the the sort of theology that invites incredible anger at God. Not only is God doing this, God is doing it because God somehow thinks we deserve it, and God is in complete control of this. What happens as the writings go on is the Rebbe sees a magnitude of suffering that just, it becomes untenable to him that God is doing this First of all, as a punishment, it becomes absolutely inconceivable to him that that is possible. But B, it becomes less clear to him that he thinks that this is something that God is orchestrating, even if it's not as a punishment. 
And he moves to a space where this is actually being done to God along with, along with to us. And something happens there. It, it's a very difficult move in what I'd call classic classical Jewish theology. Um, it becomes the, the idea of um, a God who's not necessarily completely in control or chooses not to necessarily be completely in control, a quote unquote, you might say weakened God, allows you to not feel anger at that God, but it doesn't go so far as what you're offering, which is, is there a way to actually join our anger together with that of God or address that feeling of God and have union even in that experience? And now that you said that, I'm dying to go down a rabbit hole to see if there is someone who does. Thank you. Um, before we get to Emma, I just want to check if anyone who we haven't heard from yet wants to ask a question or make a comment. Okay, Emma. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I guess, well, one, I'm, this is not what I think is being said, but I just want to disclaimer, like I'm not into like glorifying suffering or anything. I totally don't think that's the point. Um, but this is just making me think of, you know, times that I have like cried, you know, literally. And, uh, you know, when I allow myself to like really deeply cry and what a uh, kind of spiritual experience that <laughs> is and where I've literally been like so moved. It's it like, where I'm like, this is God. Like I've literally felt like, you know, this is something. It's kind of that outpour um and i definitely think of divinity kind of as like the potency of whatever flows through um be it positive or, or negative um yes yeah, so i've just this has really resonated with my experience and is a really beautiful idea i just have to say that 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 description of what crying can be really resonates with me so thank you for that all right we can go back to aglaia as well Okay, following up on um, Ethan's comment also, um, I will say that um, I spent um, three months, like um, before my, you know, dad died and started that rash of people who died in less than two months. Um, the, um, I was pretty angry about some stuff that had gone down, like really, really kind of just mad at everything. And then all of a sudden I get the call and my dad died and then starts the grief cycle. But here's the thing though, is that um, during that time of rage, I was like, for the nine billionth time in my life, I was like, I hate religion. It's nothing but the opiate of the masses and all of this other stuff though. And I'm kind of noticing though, in hindsight, um, during that time of, you know, like anger and everything like that though, I wasn't crying at all. And I think that if I had cried, um, that might have been a better way to handle things than just screaming about like how much I hated religion and how much I hated people and everything like that. So I don't know, but I think a lot of the time though, um, a lot of anger is also um, grief that has not been expressed. And that's something else. That's another rabbit hole we can go down if we wanted to, but that's just, you know, I had to get it out though, because then people died, but yeah. Yeah. And just to, to connect that to what Emma said, I, for me at least, part of the reason that that happens sometimes is because when I'm angry, at least I feel like I'm in control. When I'm crying, it's 
it's different. It's not me in control anymore. And that that can be incredible and exactly what I need. But it's also scary for a human being to give that up, that feeling of I'm in charge here. Anyone else, other questions or thoughts? Hi, Arthur. Oh, oh, sorry, you're muted. Sorry, sorry. We, we, we seldom reach the subject of the Holocaust when we ought to. Um, I've spent years reading survivors' memoirs, and um, they seldom talk about crying surrounded by death. They do, many of them, talk about a division in the ranks between the ultra-Orthodox in the camps who are angry um, at assimilated Jews, mm. fellow prisoners, and who will argue that God has turned his face away from this suffering and blame the assimilated Jews for the plight, for the fact of the Holocaust. So, so there's a, a way of grief being complicated by blame placing, by you know scapegoating, and I'm sorry to introduce that complexity so close to the end, but but the Holocaust belongs in all subject discussions of theology. That first of all, I never knew that. Thank you for sharing that with me. I I now have to wonder if when the when the Ish Kodesh was writing this in the Warsaw Ghetto, he already saw that starting to happen and wanted mm. wanted to fend that off. Mm -hmm. I I don't know if there's any way to find writings about that, but that just made me imagine this in a completely new way. Thank mm -hmm. you. Thank you. Are there any other questions or comments before we wrap up? All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rabbi Adler. So much. I just wanted to say that it's it always really moves me when people take time out in the middle of their days to learn Torah, and I just am really moved by what this group shared and the new pathways that you've introduced for me in this. And just thank you for taking time out today to do that. Thank you. Well said. Thank you so much. Um, I also just want to let everyone know about our next class, which will be next Thursday on June 29th at 10 a.m. Pacific. Um, we will be hearing from Rabbi Dove Peretz Elkins on his talk, Stories, the Incredible Power of a Story to Change Lives. So I hope you can all tune into that as well. And thank you again for being here with us today and engaging and learning with us. Hope you all have a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.